for meditation this evening, please turn with me to Genesis, the 37th chapter. Genesis chapter 37. We started in the life of Joseph, and in this 37th chapter, there's three themes, that Jacob esteeming, Joseph dreaming, and his brother scheming. We did the first two themes uh, two weeks ago, and now we pick up our reading on verse 12 in his brother's scheming. Genesis 37, uh, verse 12. And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said, Here am I. And he said unto him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him, and cast him into some pit, and we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands, and he said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands, to deliver him again to his father. And it came to pass, when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked. And behold, a company of the Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels, bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. Then there passed by Midianites merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit, and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. And Reuben returned unto the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes. And he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, 
For I will go down into the grave unto my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and a captain of the guard. I've read up to the last verse in chapter 37. We pick up the story here where Joseph, Jacob, as the father, is concerned about his brethren as they've gone far away to feed the sheep. And they had to leave quite a distance. It, it's uh, approximately 100 kilometers away from the vale or the valley of Hebron that they were into where they were, where they were destined in Shechem. And <clears throat> so as a father, one can imagine he's concerned about his, his children, how, how they fare about the flocks. And he <clears throat> asks Joseph to go to Shechem. Now, it was quite bold for them to go to Shechem because several uh, verse, chapters earlier, we read how Simeon and Levi, one of the older, two of the older brothers, had done some uh, terrible deeds in that area, had murdered some of the townspeople there, and as a result, they had to actually leave the area for, for fear of their life. And now some years later, we don't know exactly how many years later, they go back there. And so Jacob sends Joseph and we see his obedient response. There, we don't read of any hesitation where he says, here am I. Now, of course, in Joseph's perspective, if we take a moment to think of it, he had three legitimate reasons why uh, he could have excused himself from the request. Not only was it, uh, not only was he despised by his brethren and certainly would not have been appreciated for the sacrifice to go and see them, but also the distance was significant. Traveling a hundred kilometers by himself across territory that he didn't know, didn't know the various people there. He's a young man in his late teens here. And as a result was the danger. And yet, for the love of his father, he didn't hesitate. He said, here am I. And so he travels there and searches for them. He can't find them and has to travel another, maybe about 25 kilometers to Dothan to find them. We aren't told exactly how long that journey took by foot, as we best understand that it was probably taken on foot. And so it was likely several days' journey for him to make that And we see Joseph's, uh, a beginning of Joseph's character of his love and his willingness to obey his father despite the sacrifice that was required. And, and certainly uh, we understand that legitimate or true obedience and love is really only known, fully known, when it is tested, when there's sacrifice involved, when uh, one has to uh, put aside their own preferences, and and be willing to face danger and go, in a sense, the second mile, even though he would no doubt have known that he would be despised by his brethren. He would not have received accolades or would have received thanks from them, knowing how much they disliked him. In fact, the, the scripture earlier said how strong they hated him. But we also see the love of a father as Jacob... <clears throat> desires to know the welfare of his sons. 
And parents can well identify when they have children that have gone from their household and they don't know exactly how they fare and especially may be concerned or worried knowing that they don't always make wise decisions. And that was certainly true for these 11 brethren as they had a history of making poor choices and getting themselves into trouble. And then we see as he... uh, finds them then in Dotham, and they see him afar off. Perhaps it was because of his coat of many colors, the fanciness of the coat that they saw, and they recognized who it was, and their hatred had now developed, had grown to such a degree that it had become murderous. And is a fulfillment of what we read in, 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 in John, the gospel, not the gospel, the epistle of John, where it says that, that, um, he who hateth his brother is a murderer. And is a practical example of how that begins in the heart and grows to the point of such a murderous intent. And it's interesting how they speak one to another in verse 19. It says, Behold, this dreamer cometh. They didn't call him their brother. They called him the dreamer because this was something that especially irritated them. The dreams that he had shared with them that we had gone through the last time in the earlier part of the chapter. And in a sense, it's almost that they're turning their heel up against what was to come in the future. And they wanted to make sure that it wouldn't be happen wouldn't happen because we see in verse 20, it says, we shall see what will become of his dreams. In a sense, a sarcastic saying that we're going to put a stop to this to make sure that those dreams will not be fulfilled. What I see here is an interesting parallel to Jesus. As his father loved those that didn't reciprocate the love in the same way, and sent him, and Jesus came knowing that he would be despised. And those that were there at the time wanted to put a stop to the prophecies, wanted to put a stop to the ministry, and they also had murderous intent and went about to slay him. But in both cases, in both Joseph's case as well as Jesus' case, God's plan was not to be thwarted was not to be upset, was not to be canceled, was not to be blocked. Because though their intent was for evil, God in his greatness was able to even take that evil and turn it around for good. It just comes to mind, I had a colleague some years ago that was trained in black belt karate. And one of the things is he described to me of how he could take the opponent's uh, moves or their strength or their momentum and actually turn it around what that opponent means for evil towards him with a few <clears throat> moves can take that very momentum and power and strength that is meant for evil for him and turn it around and make it... <clears throat> uh, Redound, in a sense, to their own demise. And though that um, 
from God's perspective, he's able to use that evil momentum, though he does not desire that. He does not desire for anyone to sin or do evil. But when they do, he is great enough to be able to take those evil intents and passions and be able to turn them and use them for his purposes and ultimately his glory. And this is what we see as it's unfolding here in the chapter, in the story of Joseph. And as I consider this, or as we consider these, this truth that we see as a theme throughout the scripture, it's something that we ought to pause and reflect and recognize that as we see life around us, whether we look at the global outlook or whether we look at the local or maybe even in our own lives and we see uh, much uh, things not uh, turning out in the way that we would expect, perhaps it's other people's decisions that are impacting our lives negatively or um or other things as we look at the overall picture and wonder, how is God's plan being fulfilled here? We see far more people turning away from God than turning towards him. And those are troubling and legitimate concerns. And yet what I find as I study the life of Joseph here in the scripture, it reminds me that God's ultimate purpose will be fulfilled regardless of the Evil intentions of the enemy, the evil intentions of or the decisions even that people are making, not even recognizing that they may be pawns, pawns of the enemy, that God's plan will still be fulfilled. We see Reuben as the firstborn, he's the oldest, he at least seemed to demonstrate some righteous intentions. When he sees that the momentum of the brother's evil intentions is gathering steam, and as they're making these plans, he's furiously thinking in his mind, how can he prevent such a tragedy? And quickly thinks on his feet, and and evidently didn't think that he could withstand them outright, and comes up with an alternate plan. Though he was not his intention for Joseph to be harmed, puts him in a cistern or an empty pit there that had no water in it, that essentially served as a dungeon or as a, as a, as a means to confine Joseph, and <clears throat> puts him or, or persuades the brothers to instead change their plan to put him into that pit. Now, we don't read here in, in, in the 37th chapter uh, too much about the emotions that surrounded that, but we do see more than 20 years later when the brothers came face to face with their, uh, finally their guilt and their sin of how they expressed it when they said, we, we, we read in the... Um, 42nd chapter in verse 21, he says, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul, and when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. They're recognizing, they remember that account. That's how much it was seared into their memory, though they had these evil intentions and and hated him to the point of killing. Though, as he pleaded for them, 
to have mercy on him. And they turned, uh, uh, their heart was that cold. And yet, it was a wound in their own lives that haunted them for decades later. And this is, of course, the true nature of sin, is that in the moment, they probably didn't even think of the future, of what it would do to their own lives when they do such a heinous crime. But also, how would it impact their father? They probably didn't even give it a moment thought of now when they get back, what story are they going to tell to their father? And how is it going to impact them? And we only see a brief glimpse of that at the end of the chapter, of when they they concocted this lie, came up with this scheme. They had to bind themselves together to never let the the truth come out and bound themselves together in that lie. And then they saw how it impacted their father, who would refuse to be comforted, no doubt, probably from guilt of wondering, What was I thinking when I sent a teenager to travel that distance? And now it's upon my own head that he was killed by a a wild beast. Or who knows what kind of guilty feelings he would have felt. And as they saw their father bow down in sorrow, it was a constant reminder of the wickedness that they had taken, that they had done the actions that they had taken. And in some sense, they were sowing what they had reaped. And they bore that guilt for multiple decades. That is the consequence of sin is that it gives us guilt and shame. It weighs us down. It not only affects our lives, it can affect the lives of others. And there is only one way to break the curse. The curse and the the impact that sin has on our lives and the lives of others. And that is, of course, through grace in Christ Jesus, where he can break that curse, the perpetuating of the sin that often magnifies, and we see this sort of escalating from there. One sin leads to the next and leads to the next next, and escalates and continues to, in a sense, you think of it as a, as a, as a blast radius. When a explosive goes off, there's not only damage at the site of the explosion, but there's rippling effects and second and third order impact of other things that are damaged. And that is what happens with sin that continues to grow and fester. And we see the, the, the ultimate result of here in this chapter. But there's one property that stood out to me as I looked at this, at this chapter. <clears throat> a property of sin, a particular set of sins, maybe is a better way to say it, that causes A sort of blindness. They probably had no idea what they were getting themselves into. 
The blindness, that hatred and envy and jealousy and anger, <clears throat> all of these things, uh, when we give in to those passionate um, emotions and we let them control us rather than us controlling them through the power of the Spirit, they provide a kind of blindness over our eyes where we don't see the consequences of our actions when we're in the heat of it. And we say things or we do things that may seem completely legitimate. And then, only then, only later do we start to realize the set of consequences associated with. And I believe that's probably why the scripture says, be ye angry and sin not. Because anger as an emotion, as an example, is, is something that we all legitimately feel at times when there's a sense of injustice or we're hurt or these sorts of things. But we ought to never act out in anger because there's a, there is this blindness, this short-sightedness or nearsightedness that we are afflicted with in those moments of emotion. And we dare not act rashly. And of course, in their extreme, when this had festered, we don't know how long, certainly probably months or even years, that had come to this point where they were so blind they couldn't even think beyond the immediate uh, evil deed that they were doing and how this would plague them for the rest of their life. Now, though Reuben himself, as a, the oldest brother, we see he tried to deliver Joseph, but then he joined in on their sin by agreeing to this pact to lie to their father, to come up with this story of, of him being killed by this wild beast. And he bore the same consequence as the rest of them. This time was Joseph's Gethsemane. Gethsemane is the place we know in, where Jesus was in the garden and where he was afflicted with torment and great anguish of spirit as he realized that it was just moments away where he was going to be betrayed into the hands of those murderous uh, leaders that were going to torture him to a point that most humans will never experience. But it wasn't just the physical torture, it was the anguish of the wrath of God and the guilt and the shame of the whole world that would be placed on his shoulders. That was Jesus' Gethsemane. Here was Joseph's Gethsemane, where he was betrayed by his own brethren and sold as a slave probably never to return, never had any hope of seeing his family again. The future was unknown, but was terribly bleak. Being a slave, you have no idea what your master is going to be like, whether you're going to survive the next day or the next week, or will be uh, abused and beaten to death. They had no rights. And left his life that he knew behind as a slave, to be sold as property and as a workhorse, in a sense. This idea of being sold as a slave came from Judah. Judah is the fourth oldest. 
And we start seeing, as Moses writes about this account, we start seeing Judah develop into a leader that Reuben never became. See, it was more customary for the oldest one to really be the leader and the biggest influencer here. But we see Judah starting to take on this responsibility. Simeon and Levi had, uh, uh, had in a sense, forsaken that responsibility by their... Um, the, the, the scripture describes them as, in fact, Jacob, their father, describes them as uh, those that couldn't control their passion. They were constantly reacting and acting out in a violent means in their, in their, in the sense, in their unconverted state. And so, as a result, they also were not really um, of leadership quality. But we see Judah here being able to persuade the brethren to, rather than slay Joseph, to make some money off of it, and uh, at least thinking that they could, uh, this was the lesser of the evils. And we start developing Judah's character here. And we're going to see it going on forward through the story of Joseph, of how Judah expresses some of those natural leadership qualities, firstly, in an exceeding sinful ways, both from a hypocrisy, partiality, immorality. And we'll see, we see that later on in the, the story of Joseph of how that develops. And then we see how God begins to change those terrible sinful tendencies. But I don't want to get get ahead of ourselves in the story. We just want to draw your attention to the fact that Judah is now being uh, called out specially as he begins to develop these characteristics. So in the remaining few minutes that we have together, I'd like to draw a few additional applications from the, the account that we read here together. <clears throat> One is that those who do well will be misunderstood, mistreated, and suffer evil for doing good. In fact, we're told as believers that we are to expect persecution. We're expect to, we are to expect trouble because of the times that we want to do or follow the Lord's will. And so we shouldn't be surprised when that occurs. Now, there's, there's a sense of um, injustice when that happens because we believe, and, and it ought to be this way, that when one does good, should reap good as well. In a sense, the law of sowing and reaping, if we take that uh, literally in the sense that it applies in every situation and every time, and yet it doesn't always work that way. We see uh, example after example of those that in the scripture and in real life, if you're a student of history, you'll see that many who sacrificed a lot did not fully reap what they sowed, at least not in this life. And so there's <clears throat> an expectation that there will be Gethsemane experiences in our lives. And when it happens, we shouldn't be shocked or surprised or think that there's something going wrong or that God has abandoned us. 
or that um, we're maybe doing something wrong. It's always good to assess our lives and determine why why perhaps we're going through a difficult time. And if there are times where we have made poor decisions and are reaping the consequences, certainly there are things to learn from it. But there may be times where we come up empty or we ask those who are close to us to help us understand perhaps why we may be in the situation that we're in. And and if we're honest and, and we've brought it before the Lord in prayer and we, 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 we legitimately can't find any reason why the situation is occurring in that way, we need to perhaps recognize that this is one of the Gethsemane experiences we may have to go through in our life. And we need to commit it to the Lord and leave it in his, leave it to him. Think of the chapter in Hebrews 12, I believe it's verse 2, it says for talking about Jesus, um, Encouraging us or exhorting us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, that's his Gethsemane, despising the pain, and is now set at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, this is the charge to us, for consider him, that is Jesus, that endured such contradiction of sinners, that is, endured such hostility towards him. Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. He is the captain of our salvation, as it says earlier in Hebrews. And so if the captain has endured Gethsemane experiences, we should not be surprised if that should come upon us as well, and that we endure it patiently. Another application that I can say as we briefly touched on it is that nobody can overthrow God's sovereignty. And I think of the scripture in Acts, the fifth chapter, where there was great uproar with the apostles and the leaders were, were clashing together and they were called before the council and, and they were, had murderous intent on their heart to get rid of these troublemakers, these, these disciples of Jesus. And then one who had great reputation name was Gamaliel, asked them to be taken aside. And he said, men and brethren, take heed. Take heed what you do here. If this is of God, you will never be able to stop it. And worse yet, you may be found to be actually working against God himself, and yet will never, never be successful. And so they took his words to heart, at least to some degree, and they didn't take the apostles' lives, at least not at that time. But in a sense, Gamaliel, though he at that point, at least as we, uh, um, as best we understand, had, had not yet acknowledged Jesus as, as, as the Messiah, but he still had the wisdom sufficiently to know that God, there is nothing too hard for the Lord to accomplish and recognize that let's not try to fight against him. We should absolutely not fight against him. But we don't always understand God's sovereignty and how all of these things will come together. I'm reminded of our uh, hymnal, the Zion's Harp. I think it's in hymn 93. The last verse there says, 
On unto thee have I commended all with a contented heart. Every woe will soon be ended. Joy will take the place of smart. When I shall behold from heaven all the guidance that thou hast given, then I deeply moved shall say, Blessed hast thou planned my way. That's coming from a different perspective, a different vantage point. At the time, if you would have been able to interview Joseph or ask him, uh, do you see God working in this situation? You can imagine what his response would have been. He would feel completely and utterly forsaken. And yet, if you would have interviewed him 20 years later, 22 years later actually, he would have had a very different perspective because he had now been given new perspective from a different vantage point to see how God was working out his sovereign plan. And this hymn, as I read this, there are times where someone in this life will never have that vantage point. Joseph was, in a sense, fortunate that he was able to see that. But many never got that vantage point when they were here in this life to be able to make sense of certain Gethsemane experiences. And it's only in heaven that we will be able to say, Blessed hast thou planned my way when we see the full picture. And so, in the meantime, I think of the psalmist that that writes, and I'd like to conclude here with that verse in in Psalm the forty third chapter, Psalm forty three, the last verse is, "Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, who is the health of my countenance and my God." That's what gives us reason to hope when things are going sour. Because there is a much bigger picture that we are not seeing. That we can confidently place our faith and hope in God. That he will work things out for good to those that love him, the scripture says. And allows, gives us a hope in hopeless circumstances. I think of the song that we sang on Sunday from the uh, praise hymnal, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. That song was written, I believe, in the 70s when uh, the author was at a point of great hopelessness, looking at the world around him, nuclear proliferation, the threat of nuclear war, and wondering, what is the hope for going on? And was inspired to write that song. Because he lives, that is, because Jesus lives, we can face tomorrow that there is hope uh, despite perhaps the darkness or the valley that you may be going through right now. And may the scripture that we've meditated on give you new light and a new perspective on the life that God has called us to live. Amen.